0: Or could you call me friend? Or will without our differences Destroy us in the end? The walls that stand between us sons who fight for peace away i'm told mine do do they send you photographs from foreign lands and do you chill to see the missiles See the day when walls of words and fear no longer stand between the truth and dreams. When walls of windows rise into the darkness and I see you, when I look into the mirror,
1: I see you. Thank you so much. I'd like to, us to gather for a moment and take this minute to acknowledge the Squamish, Musqueam, and tsleil tooth nations upon whose traditional and unceded territory we are now standing. Welcome to Let Peace Be Their Memorial a wreath-laying ceremony to recognize the overlooked victims of war. Today's ceremony, our third, is presented by Vancouver Peace Poppies and the BC Humanist Association. We'd like to thank the City of Vancouver and Vancouver Parks for their assistance and their financial support in, listen to this, waiving the permit fees for the third year in a row for this special ceremony. Thank you so very, very much. I'd now like to invite representatives of the two host groups to say a few words. Theresa Gagne, co-founder of Vancouver Peace Poppies, will give our first address. Theresa?
2: Okay, thank you very much for everyone coming out today. A hundred years ago, people gathered at the end of a war so huge and terrible that it was regarded by many as the war to end war. People believed that surely nothing this terrible could ever happen again. Surely governments and nations had learned from this horrific and wasteful experience. But instead, what we find is that 100 years later, there have been well over 300 more wars, close to 200 million people killed. And every year on November 11th, we get together and remember. But really, what have we accomplished with all of our remembering? if 200 million people have died in war since then. Do we really think that was the torch that John McCrae and his comrades threw to us? Don't you think that they would have just been appalled to think that they had lost their lives and that we had learned so little from it? We could have used that torch to light the way to a world of peace. Instead, we've used it as a blowtorch of death and destruction. There are lots of reasons to be against war, that it's immoral, that it's wasteful. But really, I think that the inarguable one now is that it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. The reasons that we are given by our governments and our press for why we have to enter this conflict or that conflict are that it will make the world safer. It will spread democracy. It will increase human rights for persecuted minorities. But those reasons aren't valid. It isn't working. If we look at the most recent effects of 20 years of war in the Middle East and we ask, is Canada safer? No. Is the US safer? No. Is the Middle East safer? Is the world safer? No. Is it more democratic? No. So all those deaths and all that money spent, all that waste, hasn't really achieved its stated goals, And I think we have to raise our voices to say, your way isn't working. People have said to me, well, if you don't have another solution, then how can you criticize what we're doing? And it's true. I don't have the solution. I don't know how ISIS can be removed from being a world problem, how oppression can be stopped. But I offer you this analogy. Suppose we were spending billions of dollars on a drug to treat cancer. And we looked at the evidence and we found out that not only did it not work, but that it actually made people sicker. What would happen is this. I hope we would say, okay, pull that drug off the market. We're going to stop funding prescriptions for that drug because it's harmful. Even if we didn't have a better drug, we'd put more money into research into finding an effective treatment. It's the same kind of thing here. What we have to do is take war off the shelf. We need to put more money into finding something that will work, into training people who can go into a situation or country and hear what the different sides have to say, learn what the roots of the problem are, and talk with them to find out how they think they could come to live together and work together on a solution. We need to be training around the world hundreds and thousands of people with those skills to have them available, not as a peacekeeping force or training military or the police, but as a mediation resource that is available to communities and countries to deal with the difficult situations that are always going to happen. We need to commit ourselves to counting all the costs of military conflict, the social costs, the environmental costs, the human costs. We need to include all those things, and we owe it not just to ourselves, but to our military to do so. If we are going to ask soldiers to risk their physical and mental health on a military endeavor, we should be sure that in the cost-benefit analysis, it's worth the costs and will achieve what we want to achieve. If we don't do that, if we don't find a better way, then we truly will have broken faith with those who have died and with those who will continue to die. Thank you.
1: Now may I introduce Ian Bushfield, Executive Director of the BC Humanist Association.
3: Once again, I'm honoured to be here co-hosting this event on behalf of the Humanist Association with Teresa and Dennis and Vancouver Peace Poppies. I want to give a huge thanks to them for all of the work they put in on this event and making this happen every year and to all of the volunteers without which this event would not happen. I actually don't have much to add to what Teresa said. I think she pretty much summarised it all. But I do want to talk again about how this Remembrance Day, this year, we recognize that hundred years since the end of the First World War, when those guns rang silent on this day. But during that war, we know there were nine to 11 million people who died serving in militaries on both sides, in trenches. But there were another eight million civilians who died during that conflict. And even once those guns rang silent, another six million people died through starvation because their fields had been destroyed or through the diseases that spread throughout the world the 1918 flu pandemic for example was so bad because of the soldiers traveling around the world or returning home and this war for me has always been the most glaring example of what teresa was talking about how wars don't solve things because this war what what was it for it was between empires and kings and people trying to, and pretty much men, trying to assert their power against each other and willing to throw lives, other people's lives, at each other with no real accounting for the civilians or those lives in the way. And what did we get at the end? We got the allied forces winning and then exerting their punishment on Germany and the others. And that punishment, those reparations, led to economic inequalities in that country That when coupled with the racial grievances and racial animosity and racism in that country, then that racism is alive today, brings us to Nazism and brings us to fascism and brings us into another world war of an even greater proportion. I want to read some words that were written as a preface to the Second Humanist Manifesto that was written in 1973. The first one was written in 1933 following that First World War and was a glimmer of hope and an idea of trying to look for a better world, a more just and equal world. But after 40 years and the Second World War and the rise of totalitarianism around the world, people were less optimistic. And so they write, and this is Paul Kurtz and Edwin Wilson prefacing the document. They write, it is 40 years since Humanist Manifesto I appeared. Events since then make that earlier statement seem far too optimistic. Nazism has shown the depths of brutality which humanity is capable. Other totalitarian regimes have suppressed human rights without ending poverty. Science has sometimes brought evil as well as good. Recent decades have shown that inhuman wars can be made in the name of peace. The beginnings of police states, even in democratic societies, widespread government espionage and other abuse of power by military, political and industrial elites, and the continuance of unyielding racism... all present a a different and difficult social outlook. In various societies, the demands of women and minority groups for equal rights effectively challenge our generation. That was written in 1973. They continue, as we approach the 21st century, however, an affirmative and hopeful vision is needed. Faith commensurate with advancing knowledge is also necessary. In the choice between despair and hope, humanists respond with a positive declaration for times of uncertainty. And then the document goes on to talk for pages because humanists are not known for their concise use of language. But what this tries to present and what I found so touching is this was written in 1973 and these exact same conditions feel so true and so apt today. We still see democratic governments trying to justify infringements on our civil liberties. We see the effects of racism south of the border and in this country And it's hard to stay hopeful sometimes. I actually had trouble coming up with this speech, not just because I didn't have a lot of time this week, but because I don't have as much hope as I think I used to. And I don't know how to rekindle that flame other than to keep sort of going back to these documents and thinking about what it is that I do believe in. Teresa talked about needing solutions to these challenges, and that's where humanism says we should build institutions, not tear them down, or reform them when they are unjust. And we should always try to give voice to the voiceless and try to lift people up rather than tear one another down or go after each other. So on this day, we need to remember all of the causes of war, all of the victims of war, both those who fight and, as we stand here, those who were essentially in the way and everyone who was lost. Because if we forget that past, we will be doomed to repeat it.
1: Thank you very much, Ian. And now... Our featured speaker today, we're honored to have Tima Kurdi, author of The Boy on the Beach, a heartrending story about the impossible choices which war forced on one extended Syrian family. After her brother Abdullah's wife and two sons drowned when their refugee boat capsized, Tima and her brother were devastated, but they also felt impelled to act. Tima now travels widely as a speaker, and together the two of them started the Curdy Foundation, whose mission is to help children whose lives have been torn apart by war. Please welcome
4: Tima Curdy. Imagine yourself. You have to flee your home one day from disaster, danger, or maybe war. Could happen, right? And you have nowhere to go. Are you asking for help? What will you do? I'm here today to share with you my personal experience and leave you with the idea that the world we choose has to reflect the action we take. I'm here to plant the seed in your heart and mind, the seed of hope. In order for that seed to grow, we must use our voices. I was born and raised in Damascus, Syria. The country was so beautiful peaceful, and safe. I grew up in a neighborhood with all kind of uh, religion, culture, Sunni, Shia, Muslim, Christian. We all live together. We all respect each other. I immigrated to Canada 27 years ago, and life was great. In 2011, the war started in Syria, and we all watched the news coverage from our comfortable TV room. And we saw images of thousands of people fleeing their home. Some of those people, they were my own family. They flee to Turkey. I did what every one of you will do to their own family to help. I sent them money for a few years, hearing their struggle. But I could not understand how difficult it was until I went to visit them in 2014. And what I saw and experienced is not what we all watch in the news. It was worse than I could ever imagine. It was not just my own family who needed help. I saw thousands of families on the street without home to go to. Children was hungry, bugging for a piece of bread. Lots of them, they're not going to school. They are working instead to feed their family. I did what I have to do to help. It was my last day to return back here to Canada, and I did not get to see all my family. My sister, law and my two nephew, they were stuck in a close border, trying to enter Turkey after they fled Kobani, when ISIS invaded. They were 12 hours away from where I was. I did not get to see them, but I did not know I would never see them again. After that visit, my life has changed. I returned back here to Canada, to my lovely home, beautiful furniture. And I thought to my mind, how lucky we are to live in this beautiful country. Then I decided to bring my family here to Canada as a refugee. I tried for a few months, every single day, lots of phone calls, emails, But my voice was not heard. Our border was closed. Our system was set up to fail. I have to tell my family that I cannot bring you to Canada unless something will change. Give me some time. But the time has run out. Desperate for their own family, my brother and his wife, like thousands of people were doing it, decided to trust a smuggler and take a risk to cross the Mediterranean, to go somewhere they thought would mean freedom, safety, and hope. In September 2nd, 2015, I heard the tragic news that my sister, Allah Rihani, and my two nephew, Alan and Ghalib Kurdi, have drowned. I will never forget that day when I heard the news. I remember I fall to the floor and I screamed as loud as I could. I want the world to hear me. The image of my nephew, Alan Kurdi, the boy on the beach, was all over the media across the globe. In that same day, my brother, Abdullah, who survived, he cried to me and he told me, the picture of my son is the wake-up call to the world. At that time, I had two choices. Either stay home and continue to cry and feel there is nothing I could do or or say can change anything or bring my family back. And I thought, who am I? I was nobody. Or step out to the world and add my voice. Out of my pain, the strength was given to my heart, and I found my voice. And I decided to speak up on behalf of all those suffering people who does not have a voice. And most importantly, for my nephew, the boy on the beach, whose voice will never be heard. And I said, if I couldn't save my own family, let's save the others. I spoke to media globally. I went to Europe to tell the world leader about the humanity was happen- happening that my people are innocent victims, they flee by force, not by choice. And my message to them was, open your heart, open your border, and end the war. They all listened to my voice, and they heard me. I continued to use my voice. I visited a refugee camp. It was overcrowded and poorly funded. I saw people line up for food and water for hours. Every refugee I talked to, they said to me, the world are talking about us, but no one talked to us. Finally, borders were open. Refugees brought to Canada. It took a tragedy for my voice to be heard. It took one photo, the photo of the boy on a beach to move us to be human. The picture of the boy on a beach, it has been honored in many countries and turned into memorial as a statues, painting and a bronze as a permanent reminder so we do not forget and we do not go silent. Today, people all over the world continue to suffer and they needed our help. And it's getting worse, not any better. We need to join our voice together and stand up from our silence and tell the world leader, enough is enough, and force them to act, not just talk, urgently. And to find a peaceful solution to stop the war that caused innocent people to become a refugee. It's time for action, not for the blame. It's the only way we can have a stronger voice and put a human life before money and politics. We can bring the world peace. It's all up to us to end it. I hope I have planted the seed in your heart and mine and ask you to stand up and add your voice to mine. Please don't be silent. Thank you.